there's something about the last 24 hours of someone's life that commands great attention. You'll actually find, if you go onto YouTube, you will find a channel there which is dedicated to videos recording the last 24 hours of various celebrities, folks like uh, Janis Joplin, JFK, Tupac, Marvin Gaye, Sid Vicious, John Belushi, Jim Morrison, Keith Moon, and the like. And in 2010, a film was made, especially focusing upon the last 24 hours in the life of racing legend Ayrton Senna. And in this last month, a book by Robert Hardman was published, which includes extensive details of the last 24 hours of our late Queen. Now, in our studies in Luke's Gospel, we discover that Luke gives us a detailed description of the last 24 hours before the death of Jesus of Nazareth, and little wonder. These hours are filled with some of the most profound words and actions that the world has ever witnessed. Now, this evening, we're covering the first half of Luke chapter 22. And in it, three major truths emerge, which continue to challenge and encourage God's people, wherever they may be and whatever they might be going through. So the first truth is this. Number one, Jesus controls the present. Jesus controls the present. Did you notice that on the day of the Passover meal, the disciples didn't have a clue as to where they were going to celebrate it? Instead, Jesus gave Peter and John careful, albeit slightly vague, instructions as to where they'd find a room that they could get ready for that final Passover meal. Now, the reasons for this secrecy become obvious when you realize what's going on with the Jewish religious leaders. Luke's already made clear that they want Jesus dead. One group of the religious leaders, the Sadducees, were fearful of losing their power and their position. The other group, the Pharisees, were fearful of their nation losing its religious and cultural distinctiveness. And their joint conclusion was that because Jesus threatened both of these things, he had to be disposed of. And the problem for them was that they couldn't arrest Jesus during the day for fear of the crowds. And then each evening, Jesus had been leaving the city to spend the night somewhere in the region of the Mount of Olives. So the religious leaders are getting frustrated in their plans. How could they capture him? How could they set things in motion that will result in the death of this troublemaker? But imagine their delight when Judas offered to betray Jesus when the crowds wouldn't be around. We read this in verses 3 to 6. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted 
and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. But Jesus also had his own timetable. And it was God's plan that Jesus should die on that Passover Friday and not before. Now, Jesus wanted to spend the Passover meal with his disciples. He wanted to teach them many things. But this meant, therefore, spending the night in the city, making him an easy target for the authorities, if only they knew where they could find him. So because Jesus knew that Judas was now an informer, he couldn't let Judas know where they'd be that evening. Otherwise, he'd have tipped the authorities off and Jesus would have been arrested before the glorious things he said and did at that particular meal. So that's why we have those esoteric instructions that were given to Peter and John. No address was given. You notice that. No names. Just some details that would have hidden from Judas the location of that meal. Verses 10 to 12, Jesus replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Now, all these details recorded with care for us by Luke underlined and illustrate the truth that Jesus is in charge of the present. There's nothing that happens outside of his care and wisdom. He's in control. Nothing can force his hand. Nothing takes him by surprise. He so arranges every moment for his glory and for our good. It says this in Romans 8, 28. You probably know the verse. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things. My Christian friend here this evening, let me say in passing that there may be some things that you're going through at this time that seem pretty hurtful and crazy. Some things that are bringing you great anxiety. Some things that are making you ask some big questions. Well, let me remind you that Jesus still rules over the present. He still arranges all things according to his loving and perfect will. Let me remind you, even when you are fearful of death, of what King David declared in Psalm 139, he wrote, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God rules. God is in charge. 
There's a plan. There's a purpose. And it's all in the hands of our wise and gracious God. My Christian friend, remember this. Jesus controls the present. But then secondly from this passage before us, I notice that Jesus fulfills the past. Jesus fulfills the past. See, on that Thursday evening, the disciples gathered in an upper room to celebrate a special meal that they'd eaten every year of their lives and that all good Israelites had enjoyed since its inception 2,000 years before. For the Passover was an annual reminder of how their nation had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. And it was a deliberate, it was a symbolic pointer to Israel's future hope. The meal began with an opening prayer, which was then followed by the first of four cups of wine and a dish of herbs and sauce. The story of the first Passover was then recited. Psalm 113 was sung, and then a second cup of wine was drunk. After a prayer, the main course of roast lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs was eaten. And then, after a further prayer, the third cup of wine was drunk. So go back to our story, and, and let's try and fit those details in. So it, it would seem, in verse 17... Where Luke writes, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. It's a reference to the second of the four cups within the Passover meal, which is then followed by the lamb and the bread. And the cup that is referred to there in verse 20, where it says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you is a reference to the third of the four cups. You see, when they ate the bitter herbs with the roast lamb, it reminded them of the bitterness of their nation's captivity in Egypt. And the lamb they ate, they remember it had to be killed in its prime. It had to be without defect or blemish or any deformity. And actually, which for future generations of believers was to remind them of Jesus himself, described by the Apostle Paul as Christ, our Passover lamb, one who was without defect, one who was in his prime. And the eating of bread was also deeply symbolic. Three pieces of unleavened bread were eaten throughout the meal. The first was to remember Moses, the second was to remember Elijah. And the third was to remember the coming Messiah. In fact, in Jewish homes of the time, a game was played where the Messiah bread was broken in half and it was hidden for the children to find, teaching them to look for Messiah. It was this bread that Jesus broke and said, this is my 
body. In other words, you can stop looking now. I'm here. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the promised Messiah. And then the cup that was drunk after the eating of the bread was a deliberate reminder of the covenant that God had made with his people, recorded for us there in Exodus 24, verse 8. It says, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And and Jesus took those words, but he significantly changed them. We read this, Luke 22, verse 20. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, if you were to go back a few verses to chapter 22, verse 5, just earlier in the passage that we read, you'll find Luke uses the word for covenant there to describe the agreement that Judas had with the Jewish leadership. You have the word, actually, it's translated for us in our translations as agreed. But it was a word that would more commonly be translated as covenant. So if you come to verse 5, you you could read it like this. They were delighted and agreed. They, They covenanted to give him money. You see, it's from the Greek word sunthake, which describes a covenant where each party has a responsibility. So you see that it it was a sunthake because the Jewish leaders were saying, we'll give you money, Judas, if you do this. But the word that Jesus uses for covenant is slightly different. It's from the word, Greek word, diathake, not sunthake, but diathake, in which one party to the agreement does it all. For example, in the case of a will, you receive from the deceased what they had freely gifted you. You know, if you're at the reading of the will, uh, it's, you get this. It's not, well, of course, if you jump through a number of hoops. Maybe uh, some wills they do put in these various clauses. But generally speaking, a will is a diathake. It's a one-way thing. You're going to get this, irrespective of what you do. It is yours. You have no duty other than to receive what has been given. Now, do you get it? In other words, the sacrificial work of Jesus, the Lamb of God, is one in which he does everything necessary for the salvation of sinners. It's not dependent upon performance. It's not dependent upon reaching a particular standard upon going through certain rituals. You see, his blood is the guarantee of God's mercy towards his children. And just as the people of Israel celebrated the first Passover when escaping from their captivity as slaves, and just as Jesus and his disciples, as we're reading, celebrated that Passover meal in Jerusalem, so we today continue to celebrate the same truths together. We stand in that stream of history, that stream of history going back to the Exodus 4,000 years ago, that that history remembered by Christ and the disciples and significantly uh, changed by him. 
and we continue to celebrate the same truths together. In fact, in a little, a little bit later, we'll be doing just that as we have the opportunity to take communion. You see, we'll be remembering our captivity to sin. We'll be celebrating the work of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed to set us free. And we'll be glorying in the fact that he did it all. So that our approach to God is not on the basis of anything we do or perform, but solely on the finished crosswork of Christ himself. How wonderful. How glorious. You might be thinking if you were there with the disciples at that moment, would it get any better, any higher, any, any greater than this? Well, just look how the meal continues. It was in the passage before us. A traitor is acknowledged. An argument breaks out between the disciples. And the leader of the group shows his foolishness. Yet, through it all, Jesus remains in control, speaking mercy to each one of them. So my third point is this. As we've seen that Jesus controls the present and he fulfills the past, but thirdly, Jesus graces the future. Jesus graces the future. Look, I don't know about you, but times of communion, when we remember the glorious work of Jesus, can also be times of the greatest attack. There are times when, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, when the vilest thoughts unexpectedly intrude. Times when old weaknesses and sins rise up. Time when thoughts can wander away to the most insignificant and banal. Have you ever experienced that when you're taking communion, my Christian brother or sister, and your, your mind is just, oh, what about that color scheme? And you have before you, as it were, the very reminder of the blood of Jesus Christ who died that you might be forgiven. Oh, these can be times. Of great attack as it was for those future, uh, uh, as it was for those disciples then. But Jesus graces the future. I want to suggest he does it in three ways. First of all, he gives strength to the humble. See, once again, the disciples we discover were arguing over who was going to be the greatest among them. They've already had this argument, but Jesus intervenes and he teaches and demonstrates to them that. His way is one of humility and service. You know, actually, this was probably the time when he wrapped a towel around himself and washed their feet. You, you, you'll remember that story. It's recorded for us uh, there in John 13. He did something that a Gentile slave would normally do. It wasn't something that a Jewish slave or servant would do. I was below them. No, you get a Gentile, but Jesus said, you guys who are arguing about greatness, it is the way of humility. It's the way of service. You see, Jesus turns on its head the way the world operates. He said in verse 27 of the passage we're looking at, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You see, his is the example that we follow. We follow the example of the servant king 
And he is the one who by his spirit comes and challenges us and ministers into our hearts. He gives strength to the humble. But then secondly, I notice here that he gives power to the weak. For Jesus was also aware of what was going to happen to the whole group and especially to headstrong Simon. Verses 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. You see, what is so comforting here is that Jesus knows us through and through. He knew that Simon Peter would betray him. He knew how empty Simon's great boasts and promises were. And yet he still speaks to Simon, to Peter, about his restoration, about his usefulness in the kingdom. Can I say that's what I need to hear? Especially as we come to take communion. Especially as I'm struck again by the amazing depth and breadth of Christ's saving work. Especially as I feel at times of communion, my wretched sinfulness and inadequacy. Especially as I'm reminded of my repeated failures. You see, Christ not only saves, he keeps His love continues. His care for his children follows us through all the dark alleys where we may wander. Hallelujah. What a saviour. And then thirdly, finally here, he gives mercy to the rebel. He gives mercy to the rebel. You see, things were going to change. Within a few hours, Jesus was going to be taken from his disciples. So he reminds them of his faithful care and his provision. And to underline his care for them, he says this, verse 37. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what was written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now, This is stunning. It it doesn't get much clearer than this. Jesus explicitly identifies himself as the suffering servant who was promised there in Isaiah 53. If they hadn't got it by now, uh, if they hadn't got it by then, they should by, by now. For here's a portion of scripture written 700 years previously that outlines what God's promised servant would do and what he would achieve. And actually, what I'd like us to do now is read those words together. They're going to be on screen. I just wonder, if you can't see that, just turn in your Bible to Isaiah 53, which is on page 741. But if you can see them, we're going to read these together. The words Jesus said, they're about me. So I'll lead us, but please join in. We will read all of these words. He was despised 
and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring And prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, it may well be that Jesus reminded them that he would be numbered with the transgressors to show that in all their failure and foolishness, in all their sin and stupidity, he would take their place, that he would bear their sins, that he would be their saviour. Indeed, in fact, that he would be the one who made intercession for them, as he did at that last supper meal. My friends, what a saviour. The one who fulfills all the pictures and symbols and ceremonies of the past. The one who controls every moment of the present. And the one who graces the future of his children in gloriously loving ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have such a saviour. We thank you that that 
Passover meal was such a wonderful and glorious picture of what Jesus was and what he came to do. We thank you for those words that he was pierced for our transgressions. Thank you that he was numbered with the transgressors. Thank you that Jesus did it so that folks and failures like us could be set free. Father, we thank you that for many of us here, by your grace, we have put our trust in him. And Father, we pray for others in our congregation this evening who as yet have not done that, whose sins are not dealt with, who are still under your wrath and judgment. Oh, sovereign God, we thank you that in your grace and mercy, you have provided such a saviour for all who will come. Father, grant that even this evening, by your Spirit, you would call many here to follow Christ with all their hearts. Thank you for such a saviour. And as in a moment or two we come to remember the Lord's Supper, grant that this would be imbued with such understanding, with such significance, as we remember what Jesus himself instituted. And we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. We're going to stand and sing before we do come to communion.